Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. We start today with the cooling off period in BC real estate. This has now been passed by the BC legislature. So here's the deal on this now. You buy a home, a townhouse, a condo. This law would allow you the opportunity to back out of the deal, even after you've signed the sales agreement. Why is the government doing this? Well, they say too many people are getting in over their heads on these real estate deals. These are risky. The market is so hot, people are buying homes with no conditions, no inspection, no independent appraisal. Then you get the horror stories. People who bought a house move in and find out, oh no, it is full of mold. I spoke to Attorney General David Eby about this on the show earlier. Here's what he told me. Listen to this story about the family that bought a house and then found out it was uh, infested with bats. Have a listen to this. The idea is that uh, it gives them the opportunity to uh, do a proper inspection. I mean, there was a news story about a family that discovered a colony of bats living in the in the home after they purchased it. So, you know, it, it just gives uh, purchasers the chance to uh, do those inspections and due diligence. Okay, yeah, you buy a house, there's a colony of bats in the attic, yeah, you might want to back out of the deal. The government is saying you should be allowed to back out. I'll tell you what, though, a lot of unanswered questions here about how this is going to work. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Mike Bernier, Liberal MLA, Peace River South. He's the Liberals' lead critic on this. Mike, thanks for coming on today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, Mike, the Liberals voted against this, right? Why did you guys do that? Why do you not support this? Well, we obviously want to make sure we're supporting anything that's going to actually help the consumers, help uh, people to ensure that uh, they, you know, they get into a home. This is the largest purchase that most people will ever make in their lifetime. So we weren't against uh, a proper, uh, having a proper process to help people. What we were against is a blank piece of paper that the NDP presented in the legislature. Uh, what they did was they put a bill forward that was one section long, one page long, and all it says is, we know there's a problem, but we don't know how to fix it. We'll fix it at a later date. Give us permission to do that behind closed doors. That's what we were against. We're asking government to come forward with actual uh, tangible solutions, ideas, and be a bit more prescriptive so we know what the heck we're going to be doing to help people. Okay, well, let's talk about some of those sort of fill-in-the-blank parts of this. So there's a lot of unanswered questions about the, how this would work. So let's talk about some of those. So when would this mm -hmm. begin? When would this kick in? That's one of the things we, we still don't know. We don't know when it'll... It's not the law now, right? But it's going to come in later. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the challenges. Look, I know the NDP is feeling a lot of pressure and a lot of heat uh, around the housing struggles in, in British Columbia, and they had to look like they were doing something. Uh, but just by saying they're doing something doesn't mean they're actually doing something. And this bill is a perfect example. Right now, what they've done is they passed a bill this week that's given them permission to do something at a later date. They would not tell right. us when that date is. Uh, the, the minister, when I asked her in the House, said, it, you know, it could be later this fall, but they're not oh. sure. And when we asked, OK, well, you know, the cooling off period, how many days will it be? They don't know. They haven't decided yet. Uh, is there going to be a penalty in the legislation uh, in the one page? It says there could be a penalty, though, if you back out. I asked what that penalty will be. They'll tell us later. So if somebody uses their deposit now for the down payment, uh, you know, down payment for the deposit, sorry, uh, the legislation says they could lose all or some of that if they back out on the, of the deal. No, no, not the whole thing. Well, that's what I asked the minister in the House, and she said that will be determined at a later date. So you can see the struggles of why I couldn't support this bill. Um, you know, we want to look for ways to help people, but when you're non-prescriptive of how we're going to do that, it's, it's pretty hard to say that this is going to solve any issues. Okay, so one of the unanswered questions there that you mentioned is, 
how long would this cooling off period be? So let's say you agree to buy a property, you sign all the paperwork. How long would it be that you'd be able to wriggle out of it? Like the, the escape clause, would it be a week? Could you back out a month later? Like, what do you th- So the yeah. government's giving no indication of that time period? Well, what the minister said on record was, you know, it, we'll use an example of seven days, she said, but yeah, they, would not, right. they would not confirm whether it would be five, seven, or ten. They said they'll determine that at a later date. But, Mike, you have to remember here of what this really does. Um, you know, people, this is not going to stop the housing prices from going up. They're saying this is about consumer protection. Uh, we have yeah. to remember the, sell- the sellers, though, are not obligated. So one of the huge issues that I acknowledge everybody's acknowledging is people putting in offers for homes with no subjects and trying to get those home. And as you heard, there's um, situations, horrible situations, that people have got themselves trapped into. But nowhere in this bill does it make an inspection mandatory. Nowhere in this bill will it make it um, uh, the obligation of the seller to let people back in the house. So it doesn't solve anything. Mm -hmm. In fact, what it could do, and I asked this in the House, and the minister would not uh, contradict me, this actually could set it up for just speculators and investors to put in multiple bids on homes and uh, just walk away and, and tie up all these houses. Well, you know, that's well isn't, that's the point of the penalty, though, right? Like, if you set up a system where you can bid on every home on the market knowing that you can back out of it later, there's no obligation for you to follow through on the deal. You, you know, you might, you might have someone, well, I'll put in multiple bids all over the place, see how I do. So that's why the government is saying, well, hang on, we're not going to do that. There'll be some sort of penalty that you would have to pay if you exercise this. Yeah, right? I, think you, I think you know, Mike, uh, as well as I do, that you know, for a lot of investors out there, um, that's the cost of doing business. But if you're a young family who's been saving for 10, 15, 20 years, you've got that fifty, hundred thousand dollars $100,000, if you're lucky, uh, money saved up to buy your first house or condo, and then you're told, oh, and by the way, if you finally make a determination on where you want to go, you might lose all or some of your deposit, and there's going to be a financial penalty if you back out. Um, how does that help the consumer? That's actually going to make it harder for a lot of young families who are really going to have to decide and consider now when they even put a bid in on house. So I, I struggle to see how this will solve the issue. Speaking of Liberal MLA, Mike Bernier, some realtors also raising concerns about this. Let's listen to one here. Mike, I'll get your thoughts. So this is Realtor Karen Davidson sounding some concern here. Have a listen. I think it's going to cause a larger problem. In a booming market, it's only going to increase prices because that sum will be factored into the list price. Okay, so she's saying maybe this actually inflates the price of homes not put them down but you know you pointed out yourself like the government's not saying we're not doing this to cool the market off or to lower prices we're doing this to protect consumers right and that's exactly the answer that the ndp gave i mean the pressure they've been getting is around the the cost of homes how difficult it is to get into a home Um, they've done nothing to help affordability they've come out with this cooling off period which as karen just said um, could actually make the issue worse uh, we're hearing lots of realtors, lots of professionals in the industry who have come out and said, this is going to make it harder to get into a house. It's going to actually start inflating. But wouldn't the they, what, don't, don't they have an incentive to say that? Like, of course, if they've, got, if they've got a buyer on the line, of course, they don't want them to back out of the deal. So they're going to say that no matter what, wouldn't they? Well, you, you have to remember that, you know, most, well, first of all, most people that are selling a house are also a purchaser, right? So real estate agents are representing all sides and, and they have to make sure that uh, they're following their code of conduct as well. But at the end of the day, um, you know, it's really going to be, if I was a realtor and I'm representing somebody and they're really struggling to get into a home, you're doing everything you can to help them. But unfortunately, yeah. we are seeing in this market that might mean putting in a, uh, an offer with no conditions. I, I acknowledge that, but this bill does nothing to solve and protect the people right now. As we continue talking about the cooling off period for real estate deals, if you agree to purchase a home, should you be allowed to back out of the deal later? The government, BC government says you should. Mike Bernier, Liberal MLA, is my guest. Lots of calls. Trent calling from Fort St. John. Hi, Trent. Hey, how you doing, Mike? 
I'm good. Go ahead. Good. Yeah, well, in the beginning there, when you want to safeguard a house and all that stuff, you want to see the inspectors to inspect your house. So why don't they get recruitment out there and do, like, a shitload of inspections for all these people and lower the prices on that? So they're safeguarding in the beginning. Okay, Mike, I've been, thank you for the call. I've heard it said that instead of doing this sort of escape clause, why not make it mandatory to do a home inspection? What do you think of that well, idea? That's thing, yeah, that's one of the things that's been floated around uh, for a while, uh, Mike. But because right now there's nothing in this legislation, the government has not said that it would be mandatory, it still falls back on the seller. And when you're, what I mean by that is, you know, if I'm selling a house and I have five offers coming in and three of them are people with subjects, maybe they want to back out and use this cooling off period, and one is uh, maybe a cash offer with no subjects, the way the legislation is written, as the seller, I can still take the highest bid with no subjects. I could wait the prescribed maybe seven days and then move on with that sale. So it's done nothing to help those families get into uh, the homes or, or stop this issue around uh, uh, having an inspection. Should proper inspections be done? You know, we see that a lot right now if it's put in the subjects um, to allow that. But there's nothing making a seller... Uh, that makes it mandatory that a seller has to let somebody in to do that inspection after a deal's been struck. Yeah. Right. Linda on the line in Surrey. Hi, Linda. Go ahead. Hi. My inquiry is, is the um, cooling off period only applicable with realtor-represented transactions? What about the private sale? Mike, do you know? Well, that's a very good question, and I did ask that question and did not get a straight answer because here's one of the concerns that we've raised on that if, uh, as your caller just said, uh, that it maybe doesn't apply to somebody who's selling a house privately, is this actually going to just exasperate the issue? Now everybody's just going to put a shingle at the front of their property selling their house privately to try to avoid the rules and legislation that government wants to bring in. Very good point, and we haven't got a clear answer out of government on that, and that's something that's very worrisome. Let's go to Lynn on the line in White Rock. Hi, Lynn. Go ahead. Yeah, hi. Um when I'm a seller, I think I've sold my home, I turn around and buy another home, and then the person that I sold my home to pulls out. So what do I do? Do I go back to all the other people that have made offers and they know I'm desperate to, to get an offer? And then what do I do about the house I've, I've just put an offer in that I wanted to buy? It's like this okay, domino okay. effect that, that how, does, how does that work, right? Oh, that's another good question. Mike Bernier. Yes, thanks, Lynn. And, and you know, uh, Mike, your callers are, are hitting the nail on the head here on some of the struggles that we're facing with no information. I asked again that specific question. If it's a seven-day window, uh, we have to remember yeah. that most, as Lynn said, most, most sellers are also purchasers somewhere else. They're moving to a different area, larger, upgrading, downgrading, whatever. But if somebody exercises that right to back out of the bid in seven days, guess what? It starts another seven-day window for the next bid you accept. So you could have a situation where one, two, or three deals fall through using this right of rescission. As a seller, you could be sitting on your property now for you know, 14, 21 days, uh, a month. Now, unfortunately, the deal that you have somewhere else, you might have to back out on it because there's no conclusion on your sale. Exactly what Lynn just said is one of the challenges that's not addressed. Jeff in Coquitlam. Hi, Jeff. Go ahead. Hey, Mike. Thanks. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree there could be some merit to this particular legislation. However, I think as your guest indicated, how can you really tell when you haven't got a fully flushed out solution? You don't know exactly what all the implications are. So how can you yeah. support something like that? And I think that's a bit of a pattern I'm seeing with the John Horgan government. It's, it reminds you back to representation voting. I, I believed in that concept, but they came out with a 60% solution and said, trust us for the rest. And to me, this is similar. It's, it's okay. a complex problem, and there needs to be more effort from the government to flush it out. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, Mike, you got 20 seconds here. When do you anticipate the government will answer these questions? Well, we're hoping it would be sooner rather than later and hear the bells in the background. Sorry about that. And the legislature here. But here, here's one of the challenges is the B.C. Financial Services Authority 
uh, was asked to look at all of these issues to come forward with recommendations. We asked government to hold off on this legislation until they had that report and they actually had final decisions being made. They did not okay. listen to us, unfortunately, and said they'll do it maybe later this fall. We're following it closely. Thanks for coming on. I really appreciate your time, Mike. Important issue. Thank, Thank you. you. Let's keep talking about the Vancouver Police Department. You're hearing on your news there now about an investigation now into a police-involved shooting. We've been talking a lot about the VPD on the show uh, this week. On an earlier show, I spoke to Martin Anderson. He is a criminology professor at Simon Fraser University, and he is a fierce critic of the police. He says that the police exaggerate crime. He says that the police are fear-mongering in Vancouver. People should not be afraid because he says crime is actually going down. It is not getting worse. He also believes that the police department's budget should be cut and the money put into social services instead. Have a listen to this. Martin Anderson here talking about the VPD claims of rising crime. Have a listen. Well, I think what what they're doing is they're exaggerating any change. Uh, The VPD has been very good over the past couple of years, in particular, a year and a half, on um, spreading a lot of information about violent crime without um, without giving much context. Okay, he also believes that the police budget should be cut. This is part of the defund the police movement. Here's what he said to me about that. We need to do what we can to prevent these things, and more police isn't what's going to end up uh, having an impact so here. So you believe, so do you think, therefore, that the Vancouver Police Department should have its budget cut? Yes. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Barge Dahan. Barge is the former vice chair of the Vancouver Police Board, and I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Barge, thank you for coming on today. You're welcome, Mike. Hey, Barge, when you hear this argument coming from a a very prominent academic that he believes the Vancouver police are fear-mongering, he believes the police are exaggerating the amount of crime, crime is going down, it's not going up, what goes through your mind? What do you think of that? Well, I don't uh, agree with that. Uh, The VPD releases crime stats every month, and they're categorized from homicides to violent crime, uh, sexual assaults, B&Es, and so forth, those statistics are publicly available, and they also provide comparisons for the same period of time going back many, many years. So, um, you know, as we have uh, listened and known that during the last two, three years, the um, stranger assaults are going up, hate crimes are going up, B&Es are going up, So statistics are there, they're transparent, they're provided by the VPD. What do you think about the idea of this defund the police movement? I mean, this is, there are some city councillors in Vancouver who argue along these lines as well that we should take money out of police operations and put it into social services because the problems that we're seeing have to do with homelessness and mental illness and drug addiction so the response should be more services for people not more policing what do you say to that i don't think there's any disagreement that we need more services for people that are affected by with mental health uh, addictions uh, homelessness and all of that but at the same time policing is core in in ensuring that we have safe communities. So what has happened in a broader context is today VPD's funded strength is almost what it was back in 2010. Our city's population has grown by 13%. There are large housing projects going on, so there are more people here, yet our strength is the same. Therefore, with all what we would call lower priority calls, police does not have the resources to respond to those. Yeah, yeah. What would be the impact of a budget cut on the VPD, in your opinion? Well, I think that would be, that would be huge. Um, so if you go back to 2017 ops review, which said that we need, you know, 120 additional officers over the next uh, three to five years. So year four officers, uh, were, that was postponed uh, to address some of the budgetary concerns that the city had. So we're still, you know, VPD still needs 
20 officers in 2023, in, in 2024, another 20 to just maintain the level of service that exists today. Speaking to Barge Dahan, he's the former vice chair of the Vancouver Police Board. Uh, when I spoke to Martin Anderson, the Simon Fraser University professor, Barge, he made the argument that crime is actually going down. It's not getting worse. Here's what he had to say to me about that. Been following across, across in, in Vancouver for the past 25 years. Most of that crime is property crime. Okay, so he says crime is actually going in the right direction. It, it is falling. Now that stands in stark contrast to what we're hearing from many people who live and work in some of these affected neighborhoods. Not only the downtown east side, but we're talking the West End, Davie Street, Yale Town, Gastown, Chinatown, Strathcona, and a lot of these neighborhoods. We've heard from a lot of people who say it's getting worse. This is John Boychuk, the owner of Davy Tanning. This is a long-standing business on Davy Street. Here's what he told me. We talked to clients who have been coming to our business for decades that are now saying, I'm not coming in the evenings anymore because I'm terrified to walk down Davy Street. Yeah, and some have even stated, I've had it. I have been in this neighborhood. I have patronized this neighborhood. And it's time for me to get the hell out of this neighborhood because I see it just going straight downhill. Barge Dahan, how would you describe the situation in some of these affected neighborhoods? Do you think it's getting a lot worse? Oh, absolutely. At least that's, uh, that's the feeling that many, many Vancouverites have. If a business is broken into and in the morning the owner or the staff show up and they see all the damage, it does instill fear in them. So when we're talking about public safety, the city has to be kept safe for everybody, for businesses, for people who work in the city. There are many businesses who are service providers that I know of that will not go and service calls to make repairs in certain, certain neighborhoods in Vancouver. That tells you that people are very, very concerned. And, uh, and I think what we need to be talking about, rather than just defunding the police, we need to be talking about how do we maintain adequate service levels so everybody feels safe? How do we ensure that we have added capacity to provide the highest standard of public safety in the future going, going forward? How do we bring together police, mental health services, housing, uh, those who want to eradicate poverty to address the bigger issues? So the issue is not about defunding. It's about ensuring that we have adequate resources to provide for public safety in the, in the city. Now, there is one thing that I, I would like to add. The fact that we're a core sure. city, we're a hub city. Um, you know, prior to COVID, we used to have upwards of 50,000 tourists in the city on any given day. Then on the weekends, that number goes up to 100,000 with people coming from surrounding areas for various events. Uh, it's the VPD that provides policing for all those, those people. So we, as a city of Vancouver, our taxpayers, we're maybe picking up a larger burden of policing, yet the entire region benefits. So maybe the province and the city need to look at a slightly different funding model than what exists today. Speaking of Barge Dahan, he's the former vice chair of Vancouver Police Board. Uh, Barge, we had a police-involved shooting last night in East Vancouver. The v VPD say they were called to an apartment building near Commercial Drive in East 5th Avenue last night after reports of an assault. They then say there was an exchange of gunfire and uh, a man died at the scene. This is now under investigation by the Independent Investigations Office, which is BC's police watchdog. Can you comment in generally about in general about that process? Like for people who hear hear about a police involved shooting and now it's under investigation, are you confident that when stuff like this happens, that the investigation is completely independent? Uh, well, well, Mike, I can certainly say that that in the province, and it applies to all police services, we have more over independent oversight. In fact, layers of oversight and investigations 
which involved police incidents like the one you were talking about yesterday where somebody was, was shot. I am confident in the process that we have had. Now, it's not to say that we can't make improvements, obviously, and I think we're all anticipating the provincial uh, review of the of the police uh, services in the province. That will uh, shed some light in terms of what the uh, province is thinking about, where some of the improvements need to be made. Um, but I am confident in the processes that we have in place. Keep in mind that this is the one profession that has more oversight than any other profession or than any other service in the province. Arch, thank you for coming on today. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You're welcome. Let's talk about no-fault auto insurance. It is the law of the land in BC now. How is it working out so far? Well, if you have not been in an accident and been injured, you might think, hey, it's great. ICBC premiums are down. Ever since the government cut the personal injury lawyers out of the equation, ICBC profits are way up. But what if you are injured in a collision? What has no-fault auto insurance been like for the victims? I'm going to speak to Victoria Ward about that and her experience after her injury. Have a listen to this report here now from Global News reporter Catherine Urquhart. Surveillance video taken by a neighbor shows Ward walking to her car near 86th Avenue and 152A Street in Surrey. Then a Toyota Venza drives toward Ward, striking her and tossing her body to the ground. The 50-year-old was rushed to Royal Columbian Hospital. Okay, let's discuss now with Victoria Ward. I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Hi, Victoria. Thank you for coming on today. Hi there. You're welcome. Okay, Victoria, I'm very sorry about this. Uh, the injuries that you suffered here. The, the video that was shown by Global News here of this incident is just horrifying. Um, yeah, I, you, you have my sympathy. I look terrible, terrible incident. Can you, can you describe to me what happened? How did, how did this happen? Yeah, so sort of I was at uh, my friend's house, actually, um, just at a, like a girl's get-together um, and a luncheon, and I was coming out of her home carrying a bunch of skates and stuff um, and was just walking towards my car, and the next thing I knew, I was on the ground. I wasn't sure what had happened um, because she did blindsight me and get me from behind, um, which really, I guess I'm counting my blessings there. I didn't give my body time to tense up seeing it coming um and i just sort of wasn't sure what had happened um my bags i was carrying was sort of scattered all over the road and um i felt warm coming down the back of my neck and um when i put my hand there it definitely was a lot of blood um so i knew i'd been hit um i felt okay at the beginning and i kind of shot straight back up and she the driver actually got out of the car and yelled at me that i was in the middle of the road um of course, clearly unaware that the neighbors had video footage of it all. So she starts screaming at me, um, and then I really wasn't sure what had happened. I was second-guessing myself that was I in the middle of the road. Um, and then by then, sort of, you know, police, ambulance, fire came, and it just ended up being chaos. The next thing I was in the ambulance, they were cutting my clothes off, um, looking at my knee and my uh, elbow, and sort of patching up the bloody areas. Um and then I was just sort of whisked off to um, Royal Columbia and to the trauma unit. Um, and that's sort of where it went. When we got to the hospital, we then found out that there was video footage and that I was not in the middle of the road. Um, I was clearly just coming off my friend's driveway. And um, you can see in the video as well, she's swerving right towards me. Um, and even the paramedics said that, you know, if she didn't see me last minute, I probably would not be here today um, or definitely probably would have lost my legs. Um, oh. I'm assuming, yeah. What, so, were, 
what were your in what kind of injuries did you suffer there i mean the, the video is horrifying like I, I think that boy you're lucky to be alive but can you describe yeah. your injuries there yeah i mean they did say that um if i wasn't physically fit i definitely would have been dead if i was more of a senior person um i probably wouldn't have survived the hit um so basically i i had a concussion i had staples to the back portion of my head um i had extreme bruising all over I did have, um, they couldn't get it right on the first x-ray on my elbow um, because it was too swollen, um, but there definitely was a small little fracture in my elbow. Uh, my knee has ligament damage to it. Um, it's, it's my right side sort of, um, I'm still struggling with um, my elbow and my knee. Um, my left knee did have damage as well. Um, and I guess just really sore um, whiplash. Uh, my spine was rotated, um, so we did have some spine issues oh. that, um, I mean, luckily enough, I, I, I do instruct yoga, so I've managed to do a lot of restorative yoga and sort of heal a lot of myself as well. Um, but yeah, it's still, it's body soreness, you know, um, that takes yeah. quite a while to, to heal. Okay, so let's talk about your experience here now, Victoria, with ICBC. When did they get involved? Um, so they got involved, I guess, pretty much within the first week. I did get a call, um, and I got a number, and I was told that I could have 10 massage sessions and 10 um, physios, um, which I couldn't, of course, use at the beginning because I was too bruised and sore to even go in for a massage. Um, so they then questioned me on that. Um, as to why I wasn't using them within the time frame I was given. Um, they then basically um, said that they could look into um, to see if I could get any coverage for loss of wages. Um, this was all on the first phone call from them. They then sent a package. I did um, reply, um, and I did have to wait and then go in for follow-up doctor's appointments, in which my doctor has been sending in um, you know, sort of our appointments. Um, so, so far from ICBC, I've basically just been told that now with this new no-fault insurance, um, there's nothing they can do for me um, except for pay for my 10 massage, my 10 physio. Um, that's all they can do for me right now um, due to, they can't, they don't know if they can cover loss of wages. They still need to do some looking into that. Um, with me giving proof that I've been a working citizen, um, yet I've been paying car insurance since I was 17. Um, so that's really my big question as to why are we paying all this car insurance if we're not covered. Um, I do not get anything for my injuries um, due to no-fault insurance. So the woman clearly was on the wrong side of the road, um, but she's not at fault. So it's just um, ICBC, wow. I guess, wins. It's a win-win situation for them because neither the pedestrian who innocently got hit um, is not at fault, but also the driver is not when, at fault. Because, this, happened sorry, at, at, this happened in December, correctly, four months ago, right? It did, yes. Right, and, and, and have you been able to wor work since then? No, I did. I, I, I took a couple of weeks right after I got hit due to I really couldn't move. And then I did go back. Um, I was working. I, I had a job in film. Um, but, of course, those hours are 16-hour days. I did go back and do uh, one and a half days, and uh, the migraines were getting too much. So I haven't been able to go back there. Um, then I also do um, teach yoga and fitness. Well, that has not been able to <laughs> take place at all due to the uh, lack of movement in my body. Um, and then I also clean, um, which I have just this last couple of weeks been trying to go back once a week um, again, but it's just the limited mobility in my elbow and my knee um, and just sort of all over body. So, but because I'm self-employed, um, there's nothing ICBC can do for me. So okay. I've always owned Glo a daycare. Well, I've owned a daycare and I was due to open that back up in January. So, of course, I had to put that off till July. I've just been to the doctors now, and she's even saying now there's no way. I do infant-toddler daycare, and they're right. saying that I won't be able to pick up the babies and give the babies what they need. 
Speaking to Victoria Ward about her injuries after she was hit by a vehicle back in December and her experience with no-fault auto insurance and ICBC. So, Victoria, ICBC gave a statement to Global News about your case. I'm just looking at it right now. And right. it says, it says, quote, to date, we are still waiting to receive the supporting documentation. When we receive the supporting documents needed, we will be able to look into some of the enhanced accident benefits that may be available to her, including the income replacement benefit, unquote. What do you say, say to that? <laughs> well, actually, um, so basically what happened is I had an adjuster in which I had to send in uh, copies of um, my income before I got hit, um, in which I did do. Um, I was slower definitely at sending it in, but it definitely was in before the global report. Um, but the day of the global mm. news, I did get a call from a different ICBC adjuster apologizing to me that my adjuster had gone on holidays, and so she does not have access to his emails, so they did not receive what I had sent in to my adjuster. So I, I guess that was them trying to cover some tracks. Um, and again, we're now even a week past that interview, and they still are pretty much saying there's nothing they can do for me because I was self-employed owning an infant-toddler daycare. What do you? Last question for you, Victoria. What do you think of this no-fault auto insurance here now with your experience here? Well... <laughs> In a very polite way, I think absolutely nothing of it. I think that nobody uh, out there knows of this. Um, ICBC haven't made it aware to people. Um, so they're just taking everybody's money um, and people are not realizing that they're not covered. If you get hit and seriously hurt, you are not covered with this new no-fault insurance if you're an innocent victim. Um, and if you are a person that causes the accident, pretty much you're not at fault. So I'm angry of course i'm upset um it's um of course hurting our my family um you know due to not being covered um and i just think that people out there need to be aware that um you know poor insurance people poor lawyers that work for these um people that are innocently hit they're all losing their jobs um and innocent people are, are going to be losing homes and stuff due to not having any coverage, but yet we still keep paying ICBC. Okay, Victoria, thank you for coming on to tell your story today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about outsourcing Canadian jobs overseas now, specifically to South America. It's happening at Freshy. Yeah, the Freshy stores. That's the uh, Toronto-based chain of healthy fast food stores. They've got a couple of locations in Vancouver. Uh, there's a Freshy store in Burnaby, according to my Google Maps here. Freshy, boy, this story is getting a lot of attention across Canada. Freshy is now has now introduced a virtual cashier in some of their stores. Uh, the virtual cashier's name is Percy. Percy. So when you go to the cashier in the Freshie store, you are actually you're dealing with a real human being on a video screen. Uh, but that cashier is not located in Canada. In fact, they are located in Nicaragua, and they're making a lot less money uh, than what they would make otherwise here in Canada. Have a listen to uh, Freshie here. Here's here's what Percy sounds like here. Have a listen. How can I help you? Meet Percy, Freshie's new automated cashier. One teriyaki bowl with chicken and one 12 ounce strawberry banana smoothie. This person is working from home in Nicaragua and costs a fraction of what an Ontario employee would if they were standing behind the counter. Okay, so imagine you go into a fast food store, you go up to pay for your food, and you're dealing with a virtual assistant, not a computer AI generated, but a real person on a video screen, but they are not based in Canada. Now, this has got a lot of attention. Uh, Freshie has issued a statement on it to Global News, and here's what they had to say. Have a listen. Unlike a kiosk or pre-ordering app, which removes human jobs entirely, Percy allows for the face-to-face -face customer experience that restaurant owners and operators want to provide their guests by mobilizing a global and eager workforce. 
Okay, that is the statement from Freshie. And how much are these workers making? You may be wondering. Well, they are making $3.75 an hour in Nicaragua. Let's check in with Leah Moody now, employment lawyer at Sanfiro Tumarca. And hi, Leah. Hi, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on. What do you think about this? I mean, Freshie, they're not breaking any laws doing this, right? No, but I wish they were. And that is sort of where this comes down to and, um, you know, why I think it's making such headlines and generating such conversation across the country. I think that this is just a classic example of how antiquated our legal system can be and just the law not keeping up with technology. Okay, so you think something like this should be illegal then? I do. I absolutely do. I think that if companies can get out of minimum provincial um, wage requirements by simply saying, we're going to outsource these jobs to a country that pays less. I think that that is exploiting a loophole that shouldn't be exploited. And I think that the government needs to close that loophole, um, given how the uh, workforce has changed over the last years and the last decade. So, yeah, I I mean, I think that I hear what they're saying. There's definitely a case to be made for the fact that, you know, these jobs are going to individuals who are part of an eager workforce and want these jobs. Um, But I don't understand why they can't be paid a fairer wage. And it just feels sort of gross to be, um, you know, doing business somewhere where you know somebody is getting an eighth of what they would be entitled to if the person was working uh, physically in British Columbia. Yeah, I wonder, though, like, it's it's very unusual. I've never seen a situation like this where you'd go to a store and you get to the cashier and you're dealing with a real person on a video screen in the store, but that person's not in Canada, like they're they're overseas. I'm not sure any other stores are doing that other than Freshie. Maybe some are, but I wonder, is it any different from, like quite often people will have experience in calling, let's say, customer service at a bank or some other big corporation, and tip, you know, very often you're dealing with someone on a phone who I think quite often is overseas, right? Is, Absolutely. Is that, how is this any different than that? You're right. It's not. And um, I think that it's it's very similar to out-of-country call centers who deal with customer support questions for companies all the time. I I think that where it's hitting a nerve with people is that this is, um, I mean, what does it take to be physically present, right? If you were hiring somebody from Nicaragua to come and work physically in a freshie store, in BC and Ontario, which is where I understand that the only stores are doing this right now. But if you were hiring somebody from Nicaragua to come work in a freshie store in Ontario, you'd be required to pay them the minimum wage. I think that being on the telephone, right or wrong, feels maybe two steps removed, whereas having somebody be present over a screen, talking to you, interacting with you, being technologically present, for lack of a better word, in the store, um, it's it just brings it closer, I think, to a situation where we might have to revisit these laws a little bit. Yeah. 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 So like the minimum wage in Ontario, as I understand it, is $15 an hour. Um, these workers to be the virtual cashier over a video link in the store, it, when they're in Nicaragua, they're paying, they're being paid $3 and 75 cents an hour. So I mean, Freshie's saving a fortune here. On, on their labor for a virtual cashier. Now, of course, Freshie would say that, well, this is just improving our, our customer service. Like a lot of people may be familiar, I'm just about everybody knows now about when you go into a grocery store, you'd have an option to use the self checkout where you go over and you scan your own items and you put your own items in the bag and put your card into the slot, you know, do everything yourself, right? Whereas Freshy in this case is saying, well, no, this is better. This is better because now you're dealing with an actual human being, you know, albeit on a TV screen. So I guess they would argue they're actually improving the customer experience for Freshy customers, right? Yeah, I'm sure that they're, that they're going to argue that. And I think that that's a really good point, Mike, because if the choice is between having, you know, staff 
and giving jobs to people who want jobs in what was a recently decimated marketplace and going completely to automation, I think that a lot of people are going to say at least the jobs are still in human hands versus bots, right? Uh, to say nothing of the fact that it, right. you know, the customer service experience aside, I do think that there's definitely an argument for that. But I, I just find it hard to accept that a multinational company um, – many of which are the ones that do outsource these kinds of things to other countries, that this is important for them to stay afloat, that this is a critical piece of their business. For me, I think that it's just a way of skirting provincial employment standards legislation, and I don't, I don't particularly like it. Right. So, so therefore, Leah, if, would you go to a Freshie store that has one of these virtual cashiers with a with a cashier by video link up from South America or Central America, or would you would you deliberately avoid going to that store knowing that? Oh, you're trying to get me to be controversial, Mike. But you know what? I'm going to take well, the bait, and I'm going to say I'm going to say I probably <laughs> wouldn't. I honestly wouldn't. I I just uh, I I really respect companies that um, that do their best to do well by their employees. And yeah. uh, I'm not sure that this meets that minimum requirement here. Right. So I wonder, therefore, if I, I suspect there may be a lot of people who agree with you on that. Like, could this potentially backfire on Freshie? Well, I mean, you see it all the time, right? I, I know it's a very different issue, but I know tons of people who won't even go near a Chick-fil-A right? You just, you get a sort of public sentiment that catches fire and it can absolutely backfire. Not to mention the fact that, I mean, I think you even said, Mike, that it just feels weird to show up and have a person yeah. that you know is live on screen and you're essentially having a FaceTime with them. might be in 10 years that this is yeah. completely normal. Why are we having this conversation? But I just generally think that if you're outsourcing the work, whether it be to call centers or whether it be to people who are going to be showing up virtually from Nicaragua, you should pay them a fair wage, plain and simple. Leah, thank you for coming on with your thoughts on it today. I appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure, Mike, as always. Let's talk about working from home now. During the pandemic, some workers slowly returning to the office as pandemic restrictions are lifted, but still lots of people uh, working from home. It has meant a slow return to normal pedestrian traffic in Vancouver's downtown core. Have a listen to this report now from Global News reporter Aaron MacArthur. The foot traffic in the city core, still a fraction of pre-pandemic levels. Office foot traffic, only about 30% of normal. The concern for many businesses that rely on the office lunch rush or the after-work crowd is the trickle back into the office. The State of Downtown report says only 11% of workers intend to be in the office full-time this year. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Nolan Marshall, President and CEO of the Downtown Vancouver Business Improvement Association. I'm pleased to welcome him back. Nolan, thanks for coming on today. Good morning. Thank you for having me. You bet. Thanks a lot for doing it. This is an interesting new report about the amount of foot traffic in the downtown core of Vancouver. How much of that has come back? Are we still way down from pre-pandemic levels? So I think we're down from pre-pandemic levels, but mostly the report was encouraging. Uh, our retail corridors have seen a return to pre-pandemic levels in terms of weekend shopping. When you when you look at uh, the Robson Street corridor, the Alberni corridor, Granville Street, uh, those corridors have seen a return of people. Uh, and I think when you uh, go back to the predictions that as much as 80% of our retail could be lost during the pandemic or because of the pandemic. That certainly didn't come to be. We've seen the exact opposite. We lead Canada in retail sales. 80% uh, of our businesses are still open and have proven to be resilient. And so we're, we're really encouraged about what we see in those corridors. Okay, those retail sales, a lot of them will depend on pedestrian traffic back in the downtown core. So, yeah, it is encouraging to see that bouncing back. How much is that retail, those retail sales in the, in the downtown, how much has that recovered? It's recovered significantly uh, over the last 
year once things reopened. We still lack the office workers downtown, and that's really the last step in a full, robust recovery. Uh, the statistic that was quoted is that 11% of office workers expect to come back to work full-time, full-time meaning five days a week. But what we know is that people are returning in hybrid uh, measures. They're returning either three days or four days a week at this point. Uh, and that is that is certainly not what it was before, but it is encouraging to see people start to return. And it's encouraging for those businesses who had to survive just off of the residents. And we're, we're fortunate that we have so many people living in our residential core downtown. Uh, but having the visitors back, having workers back, having tourists back, all of those things are, are encouraging. Okay, that's an interesting stat you just cited there about the percentage of workers who actually expect to go back to the office. Because I know a lot of people who transitioned to working at home during the pandemic, and a lot of people like it, like they like working at home. I know that in some employers are kind of asking their, their staff, okay, time to come back to the office now. What did your, so your study found that there's, there's a, it sounds like a pretty small percentage of people who will actually go back to the office full time. Well, well, Is that right? And I, I think that's, I think that's a, uh, I think that's not the correct interpretation. Eleven uh, percent of people expect to go back to the office full time, meaning exactly what they were doing before, forty hours a week, five days a week. Uh, and that is their expect expectation. That's not necessarily the expectation of the employer. But what we are seeing as we start to see things reopen is we're seeing people come back down to their offices three to four to five days a week. And so those people are correct. They're not they're not coming back for the full five days a week. Uh, but we are certainly seeing an increase in foot traffic. Uh, and we're we're still coming out of this this pandemic. Uh, we're in the early stages of our recovery. And so to see the 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 return of visitors uh, to our retail corridors, uh, to see the return of tourists to our cities, we expect to see more cruise ships docking in downtown Vancouver this year than in 2019. All of those things add to the mix that add to a successful downtown. Speaking of Nolan Marshall, president of the Downtown Vancouver Business Improvement Association. Hey, Nolan, speaking of the return of tourists, what kind of indicators are you seeing there? Well, once we saw things reopen up at the end of last year, we saw tourism really pick up. Uh, we expect to see more cruise ships in downtown Vancouver this year than we saw in 2019, which is a great indicator. We've seen doubling in, doubling of hotel occupancy. It's still below what it was in 2019, but just in the short time that the borders have been open, we've seen a doubling of hotel occupancy. Uh, and so those are all encouraging signs uh, that we should expect this recovery to be robust. There's a lot of pent-up demand for conventions, for, for leisure travel, for business travel. Uh, all of those things are, are pointing in the right direction for us. Yeah. How about office space downtown? I remember early on in the pandemic, uh, there were a lot of concerns about offices shutting down, a lot of vacant office space or offices filling up again. Offices are starting to fill back up again. I mean, again, we are at the beginning stages of the pandemic. Uh, office lease activity is picking up over the next four years. We expect 5.5 million square feet of office space to enter the market. Uh, and so those are all encouraging signs. It's mostly being led by the tech industry. We're top five in North America for brain gain. Um, and so we have a really strong basis for an economic recovery. Uh, again, tech workers, visitors, uh, tourists, the residents, all of those things uh, sort of add to the robustness and the vibrancy of our downtown. And Nolan, thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate you having me.